Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books of Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Catherine Layton about her biography of Mary Mitchell, entitled The Life and Times of Mary, Dowager Duchess of Sutherland. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you as well. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, um, I suppose I started working in social justice, jobs like uh, researching the nature of caravan living by families. And I went on into academe where I was an associate professor of police recruit education, a sub-dean learning of teaching in the Faculty of Arts, and I finished off with a, a flourish in my retirement in academic development. So um, what I'm doing at the moment is enjoying myself with research and writing, um, enjoying finding little gems, for example, like when the third duke was in New York with Mary, um, there was a report that was really, really offended by the fact that the duke came to a wedding wearing what they called a pea jacket, and she had the the temerity to be simply wearing um, flowers in her hair rather than a coronet. Hmm. Um, so... I I, 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 can, I know what you mean about the joy of discovering those little nuggets. What led you to start on this journey of researching uh, the life of the Dowager Duchess? Well, it's, it's chance because I was looking at my family tree, which is otherwise quite unremarkable, um, and I found uh, a cousin of a great-great-grandmother had been a man called Sir Albert Rollett, and uh, he had had as his second wife this dowager duchess. And um, that was curious because there was likely to be a lot of information about her and there's nothing much about the rest of my family. Um, and I tried looking at Albert first and found 
um, his interests didn't exactly gel with mine, so it wouldn't quite work. And then when I look more closely at Mary, there was she really aroused my curiosity because Albert had this sort of glowing reputation and there were reports about Mary from the 1800s that said she was old and ugly and raw-boned and grim-featured and fascinating and that she'd married a gamekeeper, which didn't quite add up. And then I found that in 2001, she was described as vulgar and malicious with cunning bristling at her fingertips. And then even six years ago, she was born into a world that was a million miles from the wealth and privilege of her time with the Duke. And yet um, what I was getting was a different picture. So um, it was curiosity who was this woman and why was she so hated? It really is fascinating to read your book because, as you explain in it, she is in many ways at uh, the heart of British society. She her her life uh, touches upon that of so many uh, famous individuals, and as you uh, reference, she uh, that that there's uh, some very famous cultural uh, uh, touchstones of, of Victorian Britain, which uh, which may reference her. And yet, she is a person who who uh, has not really had much written about her. She doesn't even have so much as a Wikipedia entry right now. No, it's true. And what there is in the Wikipedia entry is not very nice at all. Um, it's it's as if she has totally disappeared from view. So not only was she hated in her time, but uh, very little came down about her. And yet at the time um, uh, there was an enormous amount in the press at at peak moments in her history, peak crises. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about her family. Easy. Um, <laughs> because, again, there are a lot of, of records. She was actually born in Oxford, and her father was um, a renowned Latin scholar who came from a scholarly and legal family. He was known as a clever punster um, when, at the time when science was only beginning to be recognised in Oxford because of Darwin's discoveries, they appointed their first um, scientist and uh, somebody over dinner was really cautious about it because Oxford in those days was all about, all about religion um, and they said, was this scientist a sectarian? And May's father said, no, 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 he's, he's an insectarian. Um, so he was, he was um, lively, he, was, he had a high profile, he was a friend of, um, and colleague of Dean Liddell, who is Alice in Wonderland's father, um, and he personally... Uh, was very committed to education, to uh, helping students and to his career, which stalled at one point. 
Um, but he finally set up um, Hartford College, Oxford. So her father had that sort of profile. Her mother was descended from some Scottish um, aristocracy, uh, but their family had uh, lost out on the money. And from the little evidence that there is about her, she was a keen observer of life. Um, she was later to comment about her son-in-law that uh, he didn't really have the capacity to notice any satire. So that means that she could. And then she had uh, six brothers and one sister, and of the brothers, um, two were barristers, one in Madras and one who worked in Siam. There was another one who was um, a tutor of one of the sons of the then ruler of the of Egypt, the Khedive, and who went on to be a civil servant in um, Cyprus. There was another who was a cleric. There's one who was um, a headmaster of private school rugby and who built a house now still there called Mitchell House. And there was one who had a more troubled um, uh, adulthood, young adulthood, who was rather into horse racing. And he, be, he was a wine merchant, but his business failed. He came to Australia um, for a couple of years and then he went back and he ran a grocery business. So in terms of the family, he was, he was the least successful in their terms. Um, and her sister married a guy who was uh, very interested in uh, women's um, suffrage uh, right at the time of John Stuart Mill. So this was not a, um, a, a common sort of family and uh, their life was very much university life. And as... Uh, life spent in the world of the university, it was one that touched on, as you described, some very famous personages. Uh, what was Mary's own childhood like? Well, um, difficult difficult to glean exactly what it was like other than um, um, the, the knowledge of what life was like in, in Oxford with um, the students coming in and out and what what have historically been town versus gown battles, so strong differences between um, academic chil the children and families of academics and those of the locals. Um, but there were, um, as part of that life, there were um, concerts and theatres when the students were there, there were balls, there were, there was skating on when the place was frozen, um, there were fritillaries, which are, I understand are a really lovely little flower to pick in the meadows. Um, the boys were, the, her brothers were scallywags to the extent that uh, they would ride bicycles on the footpaths. They were called velocipedes then and they were incredibly dangerous. Uh, and people around were scared that these 
rowdy boys were going to run into them. Um, there were fairs that they could see out of their windows at the Oxford Fair time, um, processions to watch with famous people in them like Queen Victoria um, and there was the Prince of Wales as a student, another son of the Khedive of Egypt. So it was, um, I suppose, a life punctuated by ceremony. So she's at, uh, she, she's in this world where she has these connections. You describe her meeting with Benjamin Disraeli. You, you describe her uh, attending these events. And, and it is from these uh from these meetings, from these uh, events, that she develops these connections. And one of the most important of these early connections, of course, is with Arthur Kindersley Blair. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him and how it was that he came to meet May and how it was they ended up married. I think, well, certainly Arthur, Arthur was her cousin on her mother's side, and he had been a student at Oxford after... Um, quite a few other events in his life. So um, May's uncle, his father, had worked for the Honourable East India Company and had risen fairly high and retired. But as somebody who worked in India, um, his children tended to be, were sent back, those that survived, were sent back to England for their education. So Arthur had been separated from his parents when he was uh, five or six and started school in Jersey when he was seven. He went to Harrow in the time that somebody who's now known as um, a paedophile was the principal and he was actually in that house. Um, whether or not he was the subject of this man's affections, who knows. Um, and he initially uh, matriculated for Oxford, but he didn't go. Instead, he um, joined um, the army and he went to um, – he did. He arrived in the Crimea just at the end of that battle, spent a little while in Malta, and then was at the tail end of fighting during the Indian National Uprising. And any or all of those things could have made him um, very unsettled as an individual – uh, when he came back from India, he he left the service and went to Oxford, which is when he probably had contact with May, and tried his hand at agriculture but seems to have dropped out. Um, and they married without there having been any announcement in the newspaper as far as I could locate. So... And I'm really not sure of the circumstances of their marriage because her brother, uh, Roland, who was in Egypt at the time, noted in his diary, the day of May's marriage with Arthur Blair had this to occupy my thoughts throughout the day. Now, I can't tell whether that was joy or worry. 
Um, so they married and went on their, their honeymoon and uh, she had a first baby and unfortunately the baby died and as she wrote, because she was the one who reported it, the baby was nine months, eight days old. So in some ways I don't think they had an easy start to their marriage and cousin marriages were, were often used partly to consolidate family finances but also um, to circumvent potential other problems. And there, there were rumours at the time and later on that the Egyptian prince who had um, been in Oxford had actually wanted to marry her. So it's difficult to tell what sort of marriage it was. But the uh, portrait you paint in your book of, of Arthur Blair is, is of a person who is not necessarily uh, the happiest person in, in, within the, uh, at the time that, during the marriage. No, um, and that is what family law has said. I was lucky enough um, to come across um, a direct descendant of Mary's um, who had in his possession um, uh, various memorabilia, including a diary May had written. And the family, the family law was that Arthur had been um, a rather depressed individual. And that that is consistent with his rather broken family background. But he is still of this uh, of a similar social circle. So uh, May is circulating socially. How is it that she comes to meet the uh, third Duke of Sutherland? And, and, and who was he? Okay, well... Um, what seems to have happened, and there is only one trace of this, is that Arthur was um, a stock agent of sorts. So he seems to have been dealing in stocks and shares and as such was uh, one of his uh, clients who he probably came into contact with at Oxford at one of the balls was um, the third Duke of Sutherland, who was a major investor in uh, land and railways and all sorts of projects. Um, and so Arthur probably worked quite a bit of the time in places like Scotland where the Duke had many land development projects and also in Staffordshire near Stoke-on-Trent where there were collieries being developed and so on. He may also have had um, involvement with um, the, in, the stay, in, in some of the Duke's developments in Egypt because that was one of the areas where the Duke was also actively investing. And I'm afraid... I've run out of what the second part of your question was. Well, uh, I, I, I was uh, uh, the the Duke himself, as you describe him, he uh, 
he's in a marriage. He, he's married when 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 uh, uh, Arthur and May come into his into his life. But as you describe, that that's a marriage that's unhappy as well, but albeit for different reasons. Yes, well, that one was certainly a a marriage of convenience that brought uh, money and lands into the ducal family, but. That is exactly what the Sutherland family is characterised by. They'd always made very advantageous marriages. And by the time uh, May comes into his, Mary comes into his life, she was called May, um, he was the wealthiest of the dukes in England. He had about as much land as the Tsar in Russia. So he was just fabulously wealthy. It's... Um, he really owned much of, of Scotland. I, I, I keep thinking about. I, I can't remember who it was that said it was the the Khedive or someone else who who uh, told uh, the Prince of Wales about how that if he had a nobleman as as wealthy as the Duke of Sutherland, he'd be tempted to kill him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, he was very influential. They were they were very close to Queen Victoria. There. Um, house was absolutely their London townhouse because there are three estates of relevance in in the whole story. One of them is the London townhouse, which is adjacent to Buckingham Palace. Uh, literally, you stand inside that house and you look across at the windows of Buckingham Palace, um, and uh, the Duke's mother and his aunt and his wife were all mistress of the robes to Queen Victoria. Now, that's the closest possible relationship an aristocratic woman can have to Queen Victoria. They, um, they're their intimates. So the Duke was uh, raised, I mean, he raised his children close to Queen Victoria. Their children played together Um indoor and outdoor games. This was a close family, but it wasn't a happy one. Um, The Duke and his wife, Anne, or Annie as she was called, um, were married in 1849 and by 1859 it's clear that the Duke already had a long-term lover. Uh, about whom the Queen was very unhappy, but she wouldn't let any divorce. Nobody close to Queen Victoria could divorce without losing all their status, all their networks, all their connections and having to go overseas. So uh, they were having to stay in what was an unhappy marriage. Um, They lost a boy when he was about eight, and it's unclear whether whether or why Annie turned strongly to the evangelical uh, and the preachers, uh, the Protestant preachers of that time, um, and she would spend her time tucked away in her room reading novels and writing prayers to which Um, the guests at the house would listen, have to listen morning and evening. So she had had become somewhat eccentric and 
That was very clear by the 1870s when the Duke would have met May. So the Duke was a playboy. Um, He would carouse with the Prince of Wales. Um, They would go off to Paris together, frequent high-class prostitutes together. So he was... uh, very much the Queen's bête noire, and she really felt as if he didn't behave as a duke ought. So a man's man at a time when men could do what they like. Um, And that was at the period when uh, Mary apparently met the duke. Please do. So if if I may go on, how... Yeah, how she met him apparently uh, was that just after the baby died, um, she went to Scotland to be with her husband, presumably, and she was seen by one of the Duke's guests having conversations on the shore next to the castle that the Duke had there. And it, I don't think that was the time that they actually got together because in those days she would have been in really heavy mourning and heavy mourning literally, the, the, the veil was so thick you could not see through it and it's more likely that these were polite exchanges. And the first time he saw her, according to the family, is about three months later in Egypt when she was descending the stairs at Shepherd's Hotel, which was the hotel to stay at. And she was possibly visiting her brother there. And he noticed this woman coming down the stairs. Now, by then, she would have been in what they called half-mourning, which means she could have her face visible, her figure would have been visible, there would have been a lot of black on her costume, but who she was and whether or not she was desirable to a man like the Duke would have been quite clear. And apparently the Duke sent his valet to inquire of the maid who the beautiful widow might be, and the valet said... That's not a widow. She's mourning the death of a baby. The the Duke is going to be most disappointed. So what happened after that exactly is not known because the the first evidence of the Duke and uh, Mary being together is not until 1882. And... What is going on between Mary and Arthur at this point? Well, they're following the routines of society life at that time, which is the London season in spring, uh, winters overseas, um, summers in English watering holes or on the French uh, coast and autumns always hunting. And so they had spent 1881 in Scotland 
in a shooting lodge um, quite close to the railway that the Duke of Sutherland had built across Scotland and that led from Perth up to the north and past his castle. So uh, his castle had a railway station too. And so they stayed there with, with a distant relative by marriage and went out. Um, the men went out early shooting. The, the women might go and join them at lunchtime and have a nice pleasant picnic with the kill laid out around them and then go back and put on their afternoon tea gowns and do all of that dressing stuff and then have dinners. And so they went back in 1882 and um, they're known to have gone to stay at Dunrobin, which is the Duke's castle. And about one month after that, the Arthur was found shot dead. Um, and the rumours were that this was not an accident. Uh, it was written on his death certificate that it was a supposed accident um, some people have thought it was murder, but I argue that it was most probably suicide. The sorts of arguments that there were that um, it was odd were that nobody came out to look at the shot. You know, they heard a shot. Well, there would have been shots popping off all the time. It wouldn't take any notice because that's what people were there for. And in Arthur had Arthur's body was very conveniently near a road. He was shot through the heart and the left lung, which is a position that a right-handed suicide attempt would have. And with the family uh, story that he was uh, often depressed, it is. Either It was either a polite form of suicide, moving himself out of the way, because what chance did he have with the Duke and his client as um, his competitor or the final combination, culmination perhaps of a lifetime of using drinking as his support um, because he was known at the local pub. You also make the point that what complicates the verdict is the fact that suicide had such a stigma back then regarding uh, how uh, it was received socially, how the, even the body was treated. And that would have mitigated any sort of serious effort to verify or determine that it was suicide. Absolutely. The, in, in Scotland at the time, they'd reduced the funding for investigating cases like this. But in Scotland, Scotland his, his death was not illegal. Um, in England, it was. So even though he wouldn't have had his body uh, buried at a crossroad and slaked with lime, um, it was more awkward about where he would be buried. And uh, the Scottish procurator fiscal wouldn't have necessarily 
known quite what the regulations were, but it's clear that the families were religious and it would have been important to have Arthur buried in a churchyard. And he, in fact, his body was taken to the new Paddington Cemetery and he was buried there. But it's one of the bodies that have been removed as, as the cemetery problems got bigger in uh, London. What, uh, how did Arthur's death change the relationship between May and the Duke? Well, it took off. (laughs) Um, If it hadn't taken off before, if she hadn't, I mean, she may have been with him on a tour tour he did of America looking at the railroads. Um, But, and it looks like she was with him on his next cruise around the Mediterranean because the cruise had, I mean, the, the Duke had, a very fancy steam yacht with three masks, um, state-of-the-art luxury uh, vessel. And um, so there may may well have been secretive uh, meetings um, at uh, the Duke's um, residences and... um, discreet encounters in places like Perfleet, which is where other other people went and they were known to go later. Um, and they went further and further afield on these cruises um, and including to uh, the Caribbean. So in the 1886-87 1887, and thereafter they were they were in the Caribbean. Yet, divorce isn't still impossible for the Duke, given his standing, given his uh, closeness to the crown, and so basically he is waiting for something. He, he, there's the status quo that works, and then you have the death of his wife. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, there's, I'd, I'd almost go back a, back a, no, 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 I'll leave it as is. Yes. The death of his wife, well, um, they were just on their way out of Southampton. So they were going along the English Channel and, uh, his wife, Annie, had apparently, um, gone to see him. Because by then, she by 1878, she had this separate house in Torquay uh, where she would go when the Duke went cruising. So during the London season, they might be together. During the um, shooting season, they might be together. But the rest of the time, they lived separately. And um, she came up to London specially to see him, so it's said, to uh, request that she travel to America with him, but only on condition that uh, she get that he uh, not take uncongenial people, and he refused that, and so she took to her bed, and she died three days later. So he must have been out of the the channel. 
by then, maybe two days. And a naval vessel, a Royal Naval vessel, was sent after them. And the commander came on board and said, your wife's dead. And he said, oh, uh, really, that sort of reaction. And so the commander said, well, what do you want done with the body? And the Duke, who was not known for being overly polite, said, bury it. Um, and that was that. Um, the Queen came to look at Annie's body. Um, so that was uh, and was reportedly very sympathetic and nice to the family. And the body was taken to Torquay and buried whilst the Duke and Mary continued to New York, uh, where they discussed with um, an American former ambas ambassador called John Bigelow, who is probably better known in America than he is in Australia, um, who had been one of Lincoln's um, uh, ambassadors in Paris and Berlin. And they, they discussed with him what he thought they should do. And he said, wait, because the message came through from the Duke's family when he said, I'm going to marry Mary. They said, don't do it, oh no. They were apparently quite rude and they told him that Queen Victoria didn't want him to do it for a year. And so John Bigelow advised wait, but they went to Florida to the house on the land that Mary had bought at Tarpon, Tarpon Springs, and it was a house called Sutherland Manor. And they went to Sutherland Manor, which wasn't quite finished, and he, the Duke decided they should marry immediately. And they married at Dunedin. Uh, they were the second marriage in the church. And this is this is barely five months after uh, Annie's death. That's right. That's right. Now, that delay was scandalous. I mean, that lack of delay was scandalous, according to Victorian values. Um, it it made it was it. In hindsight, I think it probably was not that that was the major scandal. The major scandal had happened the year before, um, which was entirely to do to do with the fact that divorce was impossible. Um, the year before, the Duke himself had been sick, and uh, May had Mary had rushed to his side, um, and he was thought to be dying. And the doctors asked the Duke's family to come and visit. And they were not prepared to go there when, in in their terms, his mistress was was there too. And they, the the Duchess, dallied for four days before turning up, and uh, so did the children. And when they turned up, the the story was that there'd been a disgraceful row. Uh, the Queen sent messages of, had sent messages of sympathy to Duchess Annie about the event 
and the whole incident made what had largely been a limited, an affair limited to in in its reach, made it a very public disgrace for the Duke and for Mary. And so getting married five months after was just um, social disaster for both of them. So, And as it was the Duke's judgment that they should marry, um, it, it, it basically the sword fell on both of them and they were both ostracised from that point. Now, they are married for four years and then the Duke passes away. And this is when things start to get very ugly. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon uh, what the Duke tried to do for uh, May before he passed away and how that quickly led to May's imprisonment. The, the children were so unhappy when, they, when he went ahead with the marriage um, and presumably were still grieving about their mother's death that they stripped the houses of all uh, personal letters and memorabilia and tucked them away in boxes. And then um, um, wouldn't respond to any overtures of friendship either by the Duke or... um, certainly not by Mary, Um, and it slowly turned into bitter litigation about all sorts of small things, but also about where on earth Mary would have her dower house. It was clear that the Duke was going to die before she did, Um, and the convention was for a dowager duchess to have a dower house on the ducal estates. But the duke's son was adamant that she should have no house on any property whilst he was duke. So this was a major battle. And the worse and worse the battles got, the um, the more needful the duke was of protecting Mary from what was going to be a terrible widowhood with um, a limited circle of friends and insufficient, possibly insufficient money. Um, So he decided to leave her. He created a new will in early 1892 in which Uh, Mary and her daughter were to receive everything that was not entailed. Um, So that meant his son would inherit the property, the heirlooms, but as to the money, which was a huge amount, that would, and and various um, non-heirloom items, all of those would go to Mary and her daughter. And at the time he was dying, the whole issue of the Dow House wasn't resolved. So he made a final codicil saying that if it wasn't resolved 
at the time of his death, she was to get an extra £50,000. And so he died that very day. And uh, the Duke, therefore, had the new Duke, the fourth Duke, had a terrible situation to face. He'd got all of these properties, apparently no money, (laughs) and his hated stepmother, uh, he called her the she-devil, had had, uh, was not only had all this property, she was also an administrator of the will, as was her brother Walter, who was the housemaster at rugby, and Lord Dufferin, who was an old-time friend of the family. Um, And the fourth Duke immediately contacted Lord Dufferin and asked him to act very sensitively about the will. In other words, there was an administrator within the will context who was not with May. So May had an even bigger problem. So not only did he contact Lord Dufferin, he shut up all the houses to her uh, and... uh, So she was suddenly without a home other than the one that she had built for herself and the Duke in 1887, or at least bought for them in 1887. So she's in a position now where she has to fight legally for what she's been promised by her husband. How does that end up, uh, how does that lead to her incarceration? Well, Um, as administrator, you need access to the papers and the Duke has all of them, the fourth Duke has all of them, including papers in a locked desk. So um, to access them, this involves the probate court and so the case goes to court and the judge, Justice Jeune, is in a difficult position because he knows Mary from his time in Oxford. He was the person who uh, finessed the establishment of Hartford College for her father, and yet he is beholden to the Queen for his position. So he determines that... Because there's dispute over access to the papers, um, they should be opened in the solicitor, a solicitor's office and he would nominate that person. So it needed to be done on neutral ground. Now, the Duke clearly suspected she was going to destroy something or attempt to destroy something because at the beginning of the meeting in the solicitor's office, he warned her not to. Apparently, she uh, secreted a document whilst she was looking through the papers, getting more agitated as she did so, and then she got up and crossed the room and threw something in the fire. It has to have been small, not a great big wad of papers, because it would have 
it wouldn't have burned that quickly. So it burned. And um, it was thought by the fourth duke and his solicitors that this was somehow proof that they had been looking for of her um, having had a relationship with the duke before the marriage. Um, However, I'm at a loss to understand why it would be relevant in a will case, but never mind. Um, So uh, she said it's nothing to do with the case and um, changed her story as time went on, but the Duke immediately uh, brought a charge of contempt of court and so three days later she was in court trying to defend her actions She'd been rather blindsided by this event. Her defence was inadequate. Her story changed. And Justice Jeanne was in a very difficult position. And so even though um, normally people just got a slap on the wrist for contempt of court, he said the act was deliberate and willful. He had no alternative but to send her to jail for six weeks and to fine her £250. So that's how she went to jail. What was the ultimate resolution of the case? Was she able to get the the money that the uh, third duke uh, wanted her to have? Uh, Yes, (laughs) in a a word. Um, But not as much as he wanted her to have. So when the, fi- the case finally came to court, which was um, a whole year later, um, there, there were negotiations behind the scenes. It was expected to be the scandal of the decade. The court was crowded as could be. The Prince of Wales, who was expected to be called as a witness and rumour was that it was something to do with Duchess Annie, um, it was all expected to be great fun because the only way the Duke could prove his father um, had been unduly influenced by Mary, which was his his um, um, claim, was for all the details of their marriage to be brought out in court. So everyone was really excited by it. But it... Um, Suddenly, May had called in an unexpected QC. He asked for 15 minutes in, in behind the scenes. The judge granted it and they came out saying they had reached an agreement. And in terms of sequence, the Duke agreed to withdraw his charge and Mary agreed to reduce, not to be the administrator and to reduce the amount that she got. It was still huge. So now she is this very wealthy widow, and there is still a marriage in her future. Could you, t- could you tell us something about uh, Albert K. Rollett and uh, how he and uh, May end up married? Well, um, Albert Kay was from a slightly different world. He came from Hull um, and uh, he um, had 
he was clearly a very clever man. He he um, got his doctorate in laws. His his father had set up a solicitor's practice. All of the boys became solicitors, but it was only Albert who got um, a higher degree. And he'd uh, been very active in Hull life. He'd married the daughter of a ship owner. He'd become a director of a ship owning company, um, of that ship owning company himself. So he was a wealthy man in his own right. And he had um, become a, a member of parliament in 1885, not long after his first wife's death. So he was a widow what they called a progressive conservative. So he he thought that uh, you could stave off revolution um, by providing adequate services at local council level to the to the poor, and prof- that's in education, um, um, suffrage, all all sorts of things like that. Um, he was a committed supporter of of women's suffrage tried bringing in a bill which failed. Uh, He was, as a conservative, uh, radical feminist, or at least women's suffrage um, fighters, felt he was probably a bit lily-livered. And he had um, his own version of a, of, um, um, a lively private life. He was a member of... Um, a club called the Savage Club, which attracted literary and theatrical people. Um, He also owned a newspaper in Hull. Um, So he moved in the same sorts of fringe circles as Mary. And although suggestions have been in the press that he was something to do with her fight in court, I don't think so. I think it was a connection through the circles that the Duke and Mary had had to uh, rely on once they were ostracised from aristocratic society. And he was educated, witty, um, good public speaker, and everybody in their circle was very surprised when they got together. So they did in um, 1896, that's two, two years later, after he had married his daughter. So it was a very quiet marriage because Mary's mother had just died. It's especially interesting that uh, they would get married given the publicity surrounding uh, uh, May's marriage to the Duke and the subsequent scandal. It, her- what was her social standing like, and 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 did that uh, at all affect their marriage by that point? I don't think her her social standing changed. I don't think, and his did not improve. Uh, their their life seems to have become more focused on overseas, and his sorts of um, uh, political and commercial interests. So. I mean, she was. Uh, she would help him with election campaigns. She would turn up at functions. She would be at functions in his uh, electorate, which was a northern London suburb. 
but it was nothing like uh, her time with the Duke. Um, and uh, eventually the, the marriage founded um, politely with their, with their separation and she uh, um, obtained the money for her dower house from the fourth Duke of Sutherland and built the castle, the last castle to be built in Scotland called Carbisdale. Um, so um, I don't know whether it was a, a happy marriage. I think it's very, very difficult to assess the personal relations of, of, any, of anybody that far back. All that's clear is that uh, Mary's daughter Irene was quite fond of her stepfather, so um, it it seems to have been amicable, an amicable relationship, and he certainly came to her funeral when she was buried, as she had the right, next to the Duke um, at in in the family mausoleum. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, um, of course, publicity. Um, (laughs) As somebody who's retired, I'm experimenting with developing a shell subject based on her story to see if, if academics could use it as a way of looking at a broad sweep of Victorian life. I'm tempted to try a looking at the draft of a script for TV or film format because I think her life turns out to be pretty interesting with lots of twists and turns. And I have a half-written novel, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> But at the moment, it's publicity, publicity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, good luck with uh, getting the word out about uh, this this book. Uh, Catherine, thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Mark, for the opportunity of talking about it. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.